You're listening to the Truth in Cannabis podcast brought to you by Farm True. For links to all our episodes and more cannabis content, visit www.farmtrue.care. As always, please subscribe and share if you enjoy this episode. Okay, good morning, guys. Happy uh, Sunday, August 29th. I'm here today with Mr. Michael Melendrez and Sam Ruhala. Um, we're here following post the first inaugural Southern New Mexico Cannabis Cultivation Conference down here in Las Cruces. Yesterday was a great day. I think we all learned a lot, and these guys stuck around to do a podcast. We're really excited to share it with you guys today. Um, we're talking soil health today. That's going to be our big, big main focus. Um, so let me go ahead and just get started. Mr. Ruhal, go ahead and tell us about yourself, how you got into cannabis, and kind of what we're doing here. Hey, thank you, Joaquin. So, yeah, I'm Sam Ruhala. I'm an employee of Rocky Mountain Stone out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they've been in the coring and mining industry since 1964 with incredible infrastructure and relationships in place to distribute raw material. They recently uh, created a distribution company called Scobo LLC. It stands for Scott and Jimbo, the Lardner brothers, and first became involved with this distribution company when Scott Lardner approached me with a bucket of Cinderite and a time-lapse camera to run side-by-side -side experiments at a market farm I was managing. And Cinderite is a raw mineral amendment. It's a premium volcanic scoria that we've discovered in Southern Utah. And lacks heavy metals, has low salinity, ideal trace mineral content, and highly paramagnetic nature. And we initially got involved in the green industry through cannabis and hemp because this material lacks the heavy metals in particular, but also the salinity, which is harsh, harsh on plant growth. And in doing so, Scott hired me on to conduct research and development. So I have a plethora of trials with growers in New Mexico, Colorado, Texas, Arizona, and California right now. And we're retrieving data, getting the numbers to really validate what raw min mineral amendments can do. Now, it's raw mineral in organic form, and it requires a healthy soil microbiome to function to the best of its abilities. And I knew some special collaboration was going to happen when I met Michael Melendrez of Soil Secrets and discovered his line of pre and probiotic amendments. So we're in the midst of uh, collaborative trials right now, trying to see what works best with what and where and why it works. And that's why we've got Michael here today, so he can discuss a little bit more in depth what the biology and the biophysics of our soils can do for plant growth and vitality. Cool. Uh, Michael, please. All right, let's let's uh, segue into that. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Soil Secrets. Yeah, thanks, Joaquin. Um, so I'm um, uh, academically a professional uh, human physiologist uh, that's working in a dirty business, uh, growing uh, stuff that fixes soil. Uh, I also own a tree nursery up in Los Lunas, New Mexico called Trees That Please, which uh, is the only retail nursery in the state that grows trees. And uh, most retail nurseries are just uh, stores, uh, storefronts, you know, where they order their inventory from a grower somewhere and uh, and then sell it and off they go. Uh, but Trees That Please has actually been growing a lot of its native trees of New Mexico since the early uh, 1980s. And so 
Um, I'm both in a shady business and a dirty business. <laughs> so trees that please and soil secrets. Yeah. Uh, so as a human physiologist, I was uh, keenly interested in uh, helping people become uh, uh, healthy uh, using a, a holistic approach uh, towards uh, wellness, um, you know, using uh, things such as exercise uh, to obtain uh, physical fitness, um, diet, nutrition, um, emotional counseling, you know, because a lot of us are under a lot of stress and it's difficult to be healthy when you're when you just can't relax, when you can't put a smile Absolutely. on your face and be happy about life. Cortisol is a real thing. <laughs> right. So exactly. So uh, so I developed a company back in 1980 called Corpora Fit Systems. And uh, even though I was a young, squirrely guy in my early 20s, I was uh, somehow successful enough at selling the idea to some major corporations and uh, and actually uh, was able to work with uh, uh, some some Fortune 500 companies to get their employees healthy. Um, I developed some software to uh, analyze a person's diet. Now, the, the, the individual would have to t uh, log down the food that they're eating uh, in order to uh, plug this data into the, into the program, which would then spit out a report and tell us whether or not they're getting sufficient levels of all the different vitamins and minerals. Uh, maybe they're eating too many calories, and that's why they're getting fat. Uh, maybe their maybe their cholesterol uptake or intake was too high, and that's why they have cholesterol problems. You know, we could put out a very very uh, uh, extensive report on on uh, anybody who uh, uh, did this uh, this diet monitoring process. I became suspicious as to the validity of some of the data that we entered into the program because we got it from the USDA. So, in other words, if you look at a box of, of Cheerios or a can of Campbell's soup or or anything, there's going to be nutritional information on that, on that package. And it'll say, you know, uh, what percent of the daily intake of vitamin A or C or D or whatever does that food contain? And so that's the data that we plugged into our software. And uh, I became um, concerned that maybe this data wasn't entirely accurate because it's pretty old data. Some of it goes back 50, 60 years ago. Now, remember, I was doing this in the early 1980s. And so I started sending off uh, food samples, some fresh fruits and vegetables to uh, a, a qualified laboratory for analysis to see, did it really contain what the USDA said it should contain? I was shocked when the, when the data came back and, and, and they were, these, these, these food items were 25 to 30% lower in vitamins and minerals than what the USDA said they should contain. This is bad news. Why, why was this happening? I believe it, it occurred because the soils of agriculture had become exhausted. We had managed our soils using conventional means of agriculture, fertilizers, plowing, laser leveling, flood irrigation, etc., that had basically removed the biogeology process from that soil. And the crops that we were growing were essentially crack addicts, you know, to the fertilizer programs that the fertilizer companies were selling to the farmers. And, and so <clears throat> that's why our food was uh, uh, nu nutritionally deprived. Therefore, we are nutritionally deprived. When I realized this, I, I, I began to think that probably the better way of me pursuing my career for the rest of my life was to go after the problem. 
And that meant I had to find solutions to fixing the soil. And that's when I developed the company Soil Secrets back about 1983. And uh, <clears throat> so part of this uh, required that we had to understand who are these uh, uh, microbes in the soil and what do they do that contributes to the wellness of a plant. And so we began digging up plants in the wild and, and having laboratories that were qualified to help us um, isolate the microbes that were living on the roots of the plants and uh, identifying who are they and what is their mode of action? What are they doing for that plant? These are, are microbes that we now call um, rhizobacteria because they live in the rhizosphere of a plant root. And the reason why they live in that rhizosphere or that zone around a plant root is because the plant is feeding them. When the plant is busy conducting photosynthesis, it's manufacturing protein, fats, and carbohydrates. That's why we eat plants, because we're after protein, fats, and carbohydrates also. But the plant makes an excess amount of these calories, and the excess is then used to feed the microbes that are living in that rhizosphere. That's why they're there. In the meantime, the, the, mic the microbes are doing something beneficial to the plant, and they are helping to solution or solubilize the minerals that are complexed and not water-soluble in the soil. You have to understand that a plant can utilize a mineral only if the mineral can be dissolved into water because the plant drinks only water. So if that mineral is in the soil, let's say it's phosphorus and the phosphorus is, is complex with iron uh, in, in, a, in a compound that we call iron phosphate, iron phosphate will not dissolve with just water and it will not oxidize unless there's a specific bacteria there that will oxidize that iron phosphate, making it available to that plant. Hence the, the relationship. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a mutualistic relationship. Mutualistic, like in commerce, you do something for me and I'll do something for you. Sure. And uh, so that's what's happening in the soil. These microbes are participating in a mutualistic relationship with the plant. Almost like gut health, right? Probiotics. Or exactly. Like so these these are, in essence, a probiotic for the soil. And so I uh, began developing these probiotics. These I call it a consortium biopack because it's not just one bacteria. It's not just two. It's not even just 10. It's, it's, it's actually well over 20 different bacteria that we are pretty good at manufacturing and uh and guaranteeing to the farmer that they're in that package. Uh, six of the microbes that we put in this consortium are, are, are free living nitrogen fixing bacteria. That means that they can take atmospheric nitrogen and turn it into a protein, which then will contribute a nitrogen budget to the plant in the form of amino acids. So the plant prefers to uptake nitrogen not as urea, not as a nitrate, not, not as a water-soluble nitrogen. Um, if a plant takes in nitrogen in that form, then it has to go through some extra effort to do something with it. Now it's going to have to build something. What's it going to build? It's going to build amino acids. And that takes energy. Not very efficient. 
But if the plant uptakes the amino acid as part of its nitrogen budget, now it doesn't have to manufacture the amino acid. It's already made. And all it has to do is assemble it into the protein that it needs. You know, for example, the most common protein on the face of the earth is an enzyme in a plant called Rubesco. So that's a protein. So where did the amino acids come from that that plant used to build this, this Rubesco enzyme? Well, it either had to build the amino acids by uptaking a, a nitrogen fertilizer, or better yet, it pulled in amino acids from the soil. Now, amino acids can come from these nitrogen-fixing bacteria, or they can come from uh, an animal that dies in the soil. It could be that there was a gopher there, and the gopher, of course, has meat. And when the animal dies, the meat then goes through a decay process, and along comes this fungus called a mycorrhizal fungus with these little hyphae roots that then will uh, um, penetrate into this dead gopher's body and dissolve the protein from that meat liquefying it into isolated free amino acids and then it'll carry those amino acids back to the plant that that mycorrhiza is connected to and feed the plant those amino acids huh. isn't that something wow that's pretty marvelous so that's how it really works so we, we so soil secrets is a a has evolved um you know from our early days we just called ourselves an organic fertilizer company using microbes but now we call ourselves a biogeology company because we're using the natural process of biogeology, uh, which is basically uh, how the terrestrial biosphere developed anyway. You know, the terrestrial biosphere is all the continents, all the islands, any place on the planet where there's vegetation growing. Originally, there was rock and that rock had to turn into soil. What was the driving force between, uh, that, that made that rock become a nutrient that a plant could use in the form of soil? And, and that driving force is going to be the biogeology, the microbes, and the chemistry that is going on in that soil. So that's what I, was, I have focused my 40-some years of time and effort and research uh, into doing, is creating um, all of the different... Uh, um, materials that are needed to, to make that process work. And, and, and I'm grateful today to be able to be uh, in your facility here and, and, and have the opportunity to talk about cannabis because uh, our company was primarily supported financially by cannabis growers even 40 years ago. The first people that came to us and said, we want your stuff were the cannabis growers. And, and so, and, why were they the first? Because they were the ones that were looking for the next best thing that was going to help them grow a better cannabis plant. And here we are again today. And, <laughs> and here you are again today. It's just that now we're becoming better and better and better at it. And so, uh, you know, as a as a emerging company um, like like Soul Secrets, you, you have to ask yourself, well, what is your lowest hanging fruit? Who's going to buy this kind of stuff? Is it going to be the homeowner? who wants to build a healthy garden? Is it gonna be a farmer who's growing chili in the Mesilla Valley? Or a, a farmer who's growing onions over in Columbus, New Mexico? Who is the lowest hanging fruit? And <clears throat> we really couldn't answer that question. Uh, you know, the, the cannabis growers uh, did it for us by just, find, by just finding us and saying, yeah. hey, 
we understand that you have mycorrhiza and and we appreciate what mycorrhiza is going to do for our crop can we buy mycorrhiza from you and uh, so we we realized early on that we better get pretty good at mycorrhiza and today uh, i can say without any question of doubt that we are the best in north america at mycorrhiza and we are we are the only company in north america that can provide a mycorrhizal product that a farmer a big farmer in the midwest who's planting with a vacuum air planter can put our mycorrhizal product on that seed and it will not mess up that vacuum air planter and we're it nobody else can do that so so how many okay that just just a random kind of step question that i don't know if you have the answer to how many acres do you think you've covered in your life of with soil secrets can you answer that um not exactly but probably well over a million acres sure. um i mean i had the opportunity to work with one of the largest farming companies in the world uh, in california um, their farm is bigger than the entire elephant butte irrigation district combined it's a big farm and uh and so we were able to use our products on on that farm uh, right now every single acre of new pecan trees installed in the state of Chihuahua, Mexico, uses our product. And that's tens of thousands of acres. Uh, Chihuahua, Mexico has surpassed New Mexico in total acres of pecan trees. Really? Yep. And every acre has used our product. So it's a lot. It's quite a bit. And it's going to get better. That's impressive. Be because, because, you know, uh, farmers, uh, even the conventional farmers, are starting to look for solutions to the many problems that they have. A couple of years ago, I did a tour across Nebraska and Kansas for a fertilizer company that was selling an organic fertilizer. And, and by the way, we're not a fertilizer company. We support fertilizer companies. We just want to make sure the fertilizer company has a product that supports a healthy soil program and doesn't contradict it. And so the company that I did this uh, uh, series of lectures for made an organic product that was a wonderful organic fertilizer product um, that... Uh, did not contraindicate uh, healthy soil. And so they asked me to be part of their lecture series and, uh, and talk about uh, the biome and the soil and soil health and how farmers could benefit from this. So we, we did a five day trip across Nebraska, going from west to east, and then we dropped down into Kansas and went from east to west. I gave two lectures a day, um, five days in a row, and I probably had anywhere between 50 and 100 farmers at every at every lecture. Now, these farmers were old men and their sons and their grandsons. And, and I would ask the question, how many of you are familiar with mycorrhiza? And almost everybody, every single time, raised their hand that they were familiar with it. Mm. It was amazing. And even when I was going, going across the, uh, the Mennonite uh, part of uh, Nebraska, I'd have an old Mennonite farmer who was 80-some years old, and he already knew about mycorrhiza. So, I mean, personally, as I know I'm not a cannabis grower by any means or by trade. I'm a pharmacist, just so everybody knows. We've been running these podcasts. Uh, we were hitting it back in 2019 in our season one. If you guys ever end up listening back, um, we did – the one podcast that we actually did talk about the mycorrhiza was a uh, cannabis grower out of Kentucky, Carson. Um, I forget your last name, Carson, but you were the only guy I ever heard mention it. And you guys, I mean, big time farmers on the tobacco, tomato, um, 
what is that other stuff that they're got going out there in the Midwest? But he, he was one guy that I heard talk about it. And so now you're like the, you know, the king of the yeah. king of all that now. It's, it's you know, the, here. it's funny because, uh, uh, the cannabis growers, when they would call me up and start asking questions about our product and how to use our product, maybe they were already buying it, um, but they needed some help on how to use it. And I would always ask them, well, what is it you're growing? And and the answer for many, many years, the answer was tomatoes. Huh. And But I knew they were growing cannabis, you know. But uh, so we developed a, a, a mycorrhizal product that we could sell to retail um, hydroponic stores across the country and we put on the label a tomato plant Interesting. it's code for cannabis ah. and uh, but i did have some tomato growers also who were really growing tomatoes hence all the memes day 147 yeah. still no tomatoes in <laughs> yeah plants. exactly what's wrong with this plant <laughs> but we we had a one tomato grower who uh, i think was in kentucky called new day and they grew tomatoes for whole foods and trader joe's and uh uh, sprouts, big tomato grower. And so they were using our product and, uh, Ed Hewling, who was the owner of that company, uh, came to see me at my offices in Los Lunas, New Mexico, a few years ago. And he said to me, he goes, Michael, he goes, if it, if it wasn't for soil secrets, we would not be in business today. You saved us. And, uh, so, but he was actually growing real tomatoes and, uh, though, guess what? He has converted and he's not growing tomatoes anymore. He is now growing cannabis. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let us do a couple other questions for you guys, unless you had something there, Sam. Um, I was going to ask you, so when we're talking about the cannabis and kind of, um, you know, taking not the science out of it as much, but, you know, in more of a layman's terms, like I test, what are the before and after results of using soil secret products? You know what I mean? How, our growers seeing this in their cannabis, you know, grows. And the next question kind of segueing from that in terms of, um, you know, ROI versus, you know, fertigation and some of these other, um, maybe more traditional ways of, you know, feeding your cannabis plants and everything like that. Um, regardless if you are using it in combination with stuff. So hmm. I don't know if that was clear. No, I think so. Okay. Um, well, um, I think that uh, you have to understand that in order for a plant to be healthy, the soil has to be healthy. Sure. And, and no fertilizer has ever made a soil a healthier soil. So when we are using our technology of uh, a prebiotic, a prebiotic is something that's going to improve the environment so that everybody else can live there. When I say everybody else, I'm also talking about the plant, the roots of that plant, the bacteria and the fungi that are associated with that plant, the other um, uh, tiny animals of the soil that need to be in that soil. So a prebiotic is something that's gonna create that environment. The probiotic is actually the inoculum, the bacteria and the mycorrhizal fungi. That's a probiotic. So in order for us to be successful, in our quest, um, we have to make that soil capable of allowing water to move freely through that soil and oxygen to move freely through that soil. 
Everything that's good that has to happen in that soil is contingent upon water and oxygen. And so one of the things that we see um, in, in farming um, everywhere in the country is that water doesn't move through the soil freely. The soil is, uh, the soil structure is poor. And, and so uh, the soil might become overly hydrated, uh, too wet and anaerobic. Anaerobic means without air, without oxygen. And so bad things happen when, you're, when your soils go anaerobic. Uh, when we flood irrigate a field, like that, which was the traditional way of irrigating here in the Mesilla Valley, you're putting uh, uh, inches of water on top of the soil that are gonna sit there for hours before it finally starts to percolate down. In the meantime, it only takes minutes for that soil to go anaerobic. So if you have standing water in a field, whether it's a pecan orchard or a cotton field or a cannabis field, uh, if that water is standing on the surface for too long and your soils go anaerobic, you just wiped out your biota, your beneficial microbes. And then, there, and then bad things happen. Then that's when you start getting disease pressure. So what we do uh, by using our approach with our carbon matrix chemistry, which I developed uh, after doing research at uh, Sandia and Los Alamos labs, um, which was research uh, designed to try to find the humic acid molecule for the first time. Every fertilizer company in the United States sells humic acid to farmers. However, humic acid has never been found. No scientist of any merit has ever described it. And so what the heck are we selling to a farmer when we don't even know what it is? And then we're making all kinds of claims about what the benefits are of using it. Well, he uses it on his chili. I, can, I know that. Yeah, I yeah. Used it on our hands. Well, you're a pharmacist, and you understand in pharmacy medicine. You know, if when you're prescribing it or providing a medicine to somebody, you understand what the mechanism of action is to that medicine. What's it actually going to do once it's inside your body? Right. Right. And 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 the only way you knew how to t uh, describe that is that you had to understand the molecule of what that medicine is. You had to understand what the structure of that molecule is. You had to understand who are the functional groups that are attached to that molecule. You had to understand the characterization of that molecule frontwards, backwards, and upside down before you dare prescribe it to somebody, right? right. Same is true with soils. If we're talking about a humic acid, then we can't even tell you what the heck it is. Therefore, if you don't know what it is, you don't know how it could possibly provide any kind of benefit. You're just guessing. And, uh, and so I wanted to be the very first person in the world to find it and describe it. 1998, I, I uh, began working on this project with Los Alamos National Labs and Sandia National Labs and continued this until 2011. And what I basically discovered is there's no such thing as humic acid or fulvic acid. However, there is a marvelous molecule in the soil called, I call it the carbon matrix which is a massive molecule, it's huge. And uh, it's super molecular. So we're getting the super molecular chemistry, which is a whole different topic, uh, very complex. Uh, but these molecules are super molecular and they are highly charged, uh, capable of producing electricity. And it's the electricity that then charges the functional groups that are attached to them. And we know exactly who the functional groups are that are attached to them that make it work. You know, if you understand organic chemistry, the definition of a functional group is a group of atoms that are attached to a molecule 
that do all of the chemical reactions of the molecule. So to put this in layman's terms, the functional groups are the musicians in the orchestra. The molecule is the conductor. The conductor just conducts the music and the musicians create the music. So in, in molecular science, the functional groups are the musicians creating the music, the chemistry. So if I'm trying to, I don't know if I'm comparing apples to oranges here, but is it kind of the same way as like a lock and key mechanism, the functional group finds the other functional group plant versus carbon chain and- Absolutely, have... absolutely, yep. And so, um, the, the, for example, in um, most of us, I'm 65 years old, and as a 65-year-old, uh, um, all of my buddies here are the same age as me. You know, we went to college together. They're all worried about testosterone. They don't have enough testosterone. They're going to the Mayo Clinic to get testosterone so that they can be happy. Right. Right. And but did you know that testosterone, um, as a molecule, is inert in your body? It does absolutely nothing. For your body did you know that uh, i mean I, mean, I know it's attached to the side chains you know you've got your your other long it has chains. to be hydroxylated so you have to hydroxylate the the, the testosterone the testosterone and that means basically you have to attach a hydroxyl functional group to it not just one but a bunch the degree of hydroxylation is how many hydroxyl groups are attached to the to the testosterone. That's what makes it work. And the more hydroxyl groups, the longer the half-life, right. the there less you go. injections, yeah. the less everything. That's right. Life. So or some people like different stuff. So this carbon uh, matrix molecule in the soil, um, you have to know which functional groups to put on the molecule. And so- On the carbon matrix? Is on the carbon matrix. To? Okay. Right. So- that, that's what I was able to reveal doing this uh, research called uh, molecular characterization research. And this gave me the information I needed to have to build this matrix so that it is bioidentical to what is built in the soil. When I say built in the soil, this matrix is not the result of a catabolic process. All right, and thanks for this uh, little intermission there. Um, we take a little uh, just breather, coming right back on. We're revisiting a little bit of a segment on the humic acid, which we were discussing. Michael had a quick comment there, and we're going to go from there. Yeah, so I was talking about the, uh, you know, how we gained knowledge about what these molecules are and who the functional groups are on them and how to build it and everything. And, and I said something about humic acids and fulvic acids that they don't exist. And, and that's going to create a lot of controversy. That's, that's wonderful because, uh, you know, fertilizer companies or even farmers are going to say, well, yeah, but I'm using them and, I, and I'm getting good results. I can buy it. And I can buy it, you know. And so, and my answer to that is um, it's, it's, that's wonderful if you're getting good results from it. Um, the, what, what we need to appreciate is that there's a lot of variables that are in a product like humic acid because humic acids are made from only one source. They come from a mined geological substance called oxidized lignite. Some people call it humate, some people call it linardite, but it's oxidized lignite. That's what a geologist would call it. So oxidized lignite is basically coal 
that has lost its energy value through oxidation and it's no longer any good for burning in a power plant. And this oxidized lignite is rich in carbon. And so we dig it up and we pulverize it and sell it to farmers as a, um, a soil amendment containing humic acid. Or you might dissolve it into a liquid using a, a hydroxide like potassium hydroxide and sell it to a farmer as a liquid. And the farmer might say, but it's giving me results. My response to that is, we don't really know why it's giving you results. <laughs> it could be because your soils were low in iron and, and, and the particular source of oxidized lignite that that product was made from is rich in iron and it provided what you were lacking. And that's why you got a result from it. But you're not getting a result because of this mysterious acid. humic acid <laughs> molecule or fulvic acid molecule. That's not why it's happening. It's happening for another reason. And so I just wanted to make that clear about uh, what, I, what I was saying about humic acid. So um, I'm going to go ahead and let Sam here talk about cinderite and remineralization of soils, because when I started off talking, I, I talked about the deficiency of minerals or the plant's ability to get minerals uh, out of the soil. And, and so in some cases, we, you know, we have to fortify the soil with minerals that are lacking that have been mined out of that soil for the past hundred years of agriculture and now it's time to remineralize so uh sam why don't you uh go ahead and, and talk to uh, us about cinderite and its relationship with soil secrets and why we need to remineralize and what the heck is paramagnetism anyway you got it <laughs> sir yes thank you very much michael i'm before i get into remineralization and paramagnetism i'd like to just acknowledge i'm really happy that you mentioned prebiotics as part of our uh, soil health toolbox. Because as a dealer of soil secrets, I'll approach growers, especially in the desert Southwest, and they look at me like I'm crazy when we're trying to add microbial life to their soil. They say that those microbes won't be able to survive in my desert alkaline sodic soil. And that's just not true with some of the tools that we can provide them, such as Cinderite and TerraPro. Cinderite, it's a uh, single application raw mineral amendment. It means it's gonna take hundreds of years to decompose with the assistance of that microbial life. But by including it, aside from just its vesicular texture, which increases moisture infiltration, aeration in the soil, nutrient retention in general, there is an ionic nature of this material that we've, we've sought after when selecting this mineral resource and it's paramagnetism. So what is paramagnetism? Well, it's a, a paramagnetic material lacks paired electrons. It has unpaired electrons and aligns with and enhances an existing magnetic field. And what does that mean in our soil ecosystem? Well, we can dial in our soil ecosystem to align with and enhance the presence of the geomagnetic field. And microbial life can respond to that. We, we've found from research such as Dr. Andres Vidal Gadea's research out of Illinois State University, he's, he's manipulating the presence of the geomagnetic field in a controlled soil ecosystem. So a, a bucket of soil, and it's got the nematode C. elegans in there, a bacteria feeding nematode. When he applies an artificial magnetic field in the opposite direction of the Earth at the same strength, essentially eliminating that geomagnetic field in the soil ecosystem, these nematodes, little worms in the soil, 
can no longer move up and down. They rely on magnetosensory neurons to orient themselves with this field of energy. And it's well understood that life on Earth relies on the geomagnetic field, aside from just protecting us from harmful cosmic rays. Many animals, such as whales or turtles, they, they, uh, they navigate through their ecosystems using that field of energy. We know bees and many insects can see the geomagnetic field just like we see colors. And so to acknowledge that by physically changing our soil ecosystem, we can encourage the growth and vitality of these microbial communities, that's a huge resource we've yet to tap into in agriculture. And paramagnetism, as a feat in biophysics, is introduced back in the 80s through Dr. Phil Callahan, an entomologist who actually lived here in New Mexico, but he was often dismissed as woo-woo. And we're just not seeing that in the trials and the peer-reviewed literature that's coming out about biophysics and agriculture. Now, with cinderite, Michael mentioned the need for remineralization. And so we have these raw inorganic minerals such as iron, magnesium, potassium, copper, zinc, and boron, but they're in an inorganic form that aren't bioavailable to the plant. As I mentioned initially, we require the living soil biome to make these minerals in a soluble form, to chelate them. And that happens over time, as mentioned. It, it takes hundreds of years for this to decompose, but it's a feedback loop that we're creating with the, the solid state doping, you could call it, of the soil, with the paramagnetism that'll stimulate those microbial communities, which will in turn come and fetch those minerals to take them back to the plant as part of the soil food web. And so that, that feedback loop will continue and regenerate itself year after year. But that's just not the approach we have with conventional agriculture. We, prior to this, this uh, discussion today, we were talking about hydroponics and, and how we can express the difference between hydroponic growing versus uh, so using soil as a growing medium. And, and Michael mentioned there really isn't much difference. The soil we have in our agricultural lands is nutrient deficient and its only purpose is to hold the plant up as we pump soluble nutrients into it consistently. They're entirely dependent on our inputs. And that's, that's not what we want in this more holistic approach of a living soil ecosystem that will not only self-regulate itself, but allow the plants to regulate themselves through their co complex immune systems. So Sam, um, when we look at the uh, dilemma of water in uh, the southwestern part of the United States, uh, where irrigation is essential to grow a crop, um, the, uh, the, the dilemma is that the, the water wants to leave us uh, quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we irrigate it, whether it's through drip irrigation, sub-irrigation, flood irrigation, center pivot irrigation, whatever, you know, when, when you have a hot, dry climate and uh, the evaporation rate is, uh, is high, uh, that water doesn't want to stay in the soil. It, you know, we have a feast and famine cycle going on, you know, where the plant has uh, access to water for a short period of time and then it, then it doesn't have any water. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is our limiting factor in that if the plant doesn't have enough water, it, the photosynthesis is going to stop. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the, the stromata are going to close on that plant when it cannot keep the leaves properly hydrated and it cannot be uh, uh, venting out uh, metabolic water. Absolutely. Um, then the plant's going to, you know, when the temperature of the day gets up to 75 degrees and the humidity drops down to something low, like it, it's going to do every single day here in Las Cruces, New Mexico, um, then that plant's going to say, well, I'm done. You know, no more mm -hmm. photosynthesis for today. I mean, that's, that's 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so from 10 o'clock for the rest of the day, no photosynthesis. And if there's no photosynthesis, there's no energy production going on. Mm -hmm. No fats, proteins, and carbohydrates being manufactured by mm -hmm. that plant. So looking at Cinderite um, and, uh, uh, and TerraPro, both of them have a unique uh, characteristic about them in that they help to manage water in the soil. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And and what it comes down to is, as mentioned previously, is not just looking at the soil through what we can visibly condition with it. So we look at a wood chip or, or a biochar, for instance, it's got porosity to it. And we can we can think, well, that's that's going to serve as a, a home, a sanctuary for this moisture to congregate at and for microbial life to congregate at in turn. But the reality is, is it's it's not about the visible uh, texture and, and uh, the, the nature of the material. It's about the electrical negativity factor of that material. And that's what makes Cinderite and TerraPro especially effective at maintaining moisture in the, the soil environment. We call this a humectant. And a humectant is, is a substance which will essentially wick water to it and into it and latch onto it on an ionic level. This can't be accomplished with something such as pumice, which is uh, often considered a, a, a cinder colloquially, but in reality, it's, it's just silica. It's, it's a pop silica substance, um, a rhyolitic volcanic glass, we can, we can call it, mostly silica. It doesn't have the trace mineral content or the unpaired electrons that a mafic mineral, such as cinderite, uh, the scoria, is going to have. And that's, this is huge as far as a new feat in agriculture because taking it down to an ionic level rather just thinking about mechanically conditioning our soils for moisture infiltration and retention is going to be a game changer as far as reducing our overall inputs time and, and effort with our agricultural ecosystems so okay um, forgive me if i'm jumping ahead kind of referring to what you guys were mentioning yesterday at the conference um, like my question that here, which is going to be pretty, pretty easy general question, but it leads into, you know, how this, how Cinderite and Terraform are going to work. Um, but like how, so how does moisture leave the soil or, you know, at least that plant root area? So how does the moisture leave? I mean, is it just straight evaporation or is it following the salts into the other parts of the ground? Like that's kind of, that was my general question. And then when you start talking about using your products and the water retention from there, like what makes it stay? And I know it's has to do with that electrical charge and paramagnetism. Mm -hmm. And if you just broke that down, I somehow missed it. But if you could just kind of layman's break that down to me just a little bit. I'll start off um, and then let Sam also add to what our, whatever I say. Um, again, if your soil <clears throat> cannot... Um, allow the water to penetrate it doesn't have aggregate structure to it 
then uh, the water will sit on the surface and evaporate away before it has a chance to soak in. <clears throat> we see this uh, as a common problem, uh, particularly here in the Mesilla Valley uh, in the Elephant Butte Irrigation District because the soils are dispersed clays. The, dis the, the clays dispersed because of the high salt levels in the soil that caused the soil to lose its structure. The salt came from fertilizers and it also came from the irrigation water itself and also what was just indigenous to the soil. So when those clays disperse, uh, when you add water, the water just sits on the top because the clay will swell and seal and not let the water soak in. So we lose a lot of the water just uh, because of the high evaporation rate of our climate. And uh, then what does soak in, um, may not want to stay there very long because the soil doesn't have the uh, um, the physics needed to be able to keep that water uh, from leaving. Now, some of the water, of course, is going to be used by the plant, uh, but a lot of it's just going to be uh, lost through evaporative, evaporation due to our hot, dry climate. Um, if we could, if we could increase the um, the aggregate structure of the soil where we're actually making these clay particles congregate into these little supramolecular structures. The same thing as the chemistry of the, of the carbon matrix. Uh, the, the clay particles, uh, because of electricity in the soil coming from the TerraPro carbon matrix or from the carbon that was native to that soil, um, if it had never been um, farmed, will cause the clay particles to aggregate into these this beautiful texture that you can very easily dig a hole with just your head, with just your hands. And uh, my Arboretum in Los Lunas, New Mexico exemplifies that quite well, where uh, uh, 40 years ago, it was dispersed saline, sodic, alkaline clay. And you could not dig a hole without a, a concrete buster. Now I can dig a hole with my hands. And the soil has this beautiful carbon rich aggregate structure. So once you get to that point, water now will penetrate. But then we bring in the electricity, the charges that, that Sam mentioned. Um, you know, if you, if you uh, uh, have something in the soil with a strong negative charge, it's going to attract the positive side of the water molecule. Positive is attracted to negative. And so the positive side of the water molecule will be, will be uh, drawn into the molecular substance in the soil that has the negative charge and hold, it'll hold it. Ionic bond, is that the uh, word? Or? It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a weak, um, uh, a weak, bond. weak bond. Yeah, so it's not a chemical bond. Um, and so the, the uh, plant can easily um, harvest that water from, you know, from this uh, carbon matrix substance. Now, cinderite also, uh, Sam has shown me some pictures of where cinderite has a similar uh, behavior and, and can help us attract the water towards that cinder and, uh, and hydrate the soils that are around that cinder. The neat thing about cinderite and TerraPro both, the molecules of TerraPro, we've done, we've done chemical aging studies on it, um, from, from carbon matrix collected out of soil, as well as what I can manufacture, both of them 
have the ability to last for thousands of years in the soil. So whatever a farmer buys from us and puts into the soil, it's going to stay there for thousands of years, unless the, uh, there's a gully washer and it erodes the uh, feet of soil off of that land. It's going to stay in place. Um, I want to mention also, <clears throat> before I turn it over to Sam, that in, in the Mesilla Valley, uh, where we're at now, there's a lot of pecan, um, pecan orchards. Sure. And pecan orchards are facing a dilemma where the uh, trees are becoming damaged from the salinity of the soil and from the anaerobic nature of the soil itself, because the soil has become so hard, so compacted that if you tried to push a penetrometer into the ground, you would you would peg out that penetrometer at an extremely high uh, pounds per square inch of, of tension. And when your soil tension is that high, water cannot penetrate the soil. There's no room for the water to squeeze between the soil particles. So <clears throat> New, Mexico, New Mexico State University has uh, advised the pecan uh, growers that they need to take backhoes into their fields and dig trenches to try to correct this problem. It might work for a little bit. Just through the rows? Or? They're just going up and down through the rows uh, and, and going cross, cross, uh, crossways, you know, between the trees and digging these deep Working trenches. Through basically mechanically loosening up the soil and mixing the, the deeper sands with the clays on the surface. Um, but I have experience with using TerraPro in the very large almond and pistachio growing industries of California, uh, where there's, uh, gosh, there's 800,000 acres of almond orchards in California alone. And pistachio is huge also. And they have the same problem where the soil is becoming super compacted, no structure, no water penetration. But when we put TerraPro down on these soils, they rapidly develop structure. And within a few months of putting down the TerraPro, we can go back out into the fields with our penetrometer and push it the full length of the rod and never go above 75 PSI. Where before we were pegging out at 300, and not getting that penetrometer to go more than an inch deep. So the electricity factor from the TerraPro is causing the soil structure to reform so that water can now penetrate. Oxygen can now penetrate. Remember, one of the things I said at the very beginning of this, that everything that's good that has to happen in the soil is contingent upon water and oxygen. And so the, electro, the, uh, the uh, induced magnetic fields of the structures of these uh, carbon matrix molecules will do that for us and they'll do it really fast and uh, and so um, I'm excited to work with uh, with Cinderite and its paramagnetic qualities uh, because it has an added benefit of again functioning as a humectant just like the TerraPro does I don't think you can um, you can miss out on the opportunity uh, you, you, it would it'd be terrible if you missed out on the opportunity of, of using these type of products to to restore the uh, structure of the soil as well as the biotic community that needs to be in these soils. Sam, you want to take it from there? Yeah, absolutely. I'm. Uh, it, it's just been a pleasure to collaborate with Soil Secrets on the Cinderite front because, as Michael mentioned, there's a lot of compatibility and symbiosis that's happening here. And I think of 
how he mentioned immediately conditioning that soil environment, allowing infiltration into the soil, but then relying on the ionic capacity of the amendment to maintain that moisture. And so with agriculture, I typically set growers up with a, a 3 8 minus material that we brand named as para-blend. So it's got some of this larger aggregate in there with its vesicular texture for the infiltration. Then it's got some of the finer material, the, the 1 8 minus, and, and the rock dust, if you will, for the increase of surface area by, by adding this material and that electrical charge that we're trying to accomplish in the soil ecosystem. It's also important to note when approaching farmers with this that when used at the right application rate, TerraPro and Cinderite are a single application amendment. And it's a feedback loop. It'll continue to work for years to come. When we're using physics as a facet of agriculture, it'll continue to improve that, that soil ecosystem, even if it's not in direct contact with it. And with that, I, I'd like to hand it back over to you, Michael. So maybe you could mention that story of using a paramagnetic rock and sitting it on top of your nursery pots and how you could even see a change in insect pest behavior by doing so. Yeah, and, and I'm going to also emphasize again the, the permanence of, uh, of using these prebiotics because I consider both Cinderite and TerraPro a prebiotic because mm -hmm. they're, they're conditioning the soil uh, in such a way that it's beneficial for everybody else to live there, including the roots of a crop or the microbes that are going to benefit that crop. And once you get the microbes uh, in participation of this process, it's only going to get better and better and better. So it's all about getting on the journey to better soil health. we got to live on the right side of history doing this. And so it is a journey and it's not instant gratification, though sometimes a lot of my farmers will say, wow, you know, I put this stuff down and it really works and it works fast. I try not to sell it with the, with the idea of instant gratification. I try to sell it on the idea of it's a journey. Uh, but um, so that I have a question to interject on that. So if I am the average farmer or grower and I want to use your stuff, what is what is my expected process? I place a purchase order with you. You guys come, you put in the field, we put in the field. How does that part work? Um, so I know, I, as you mentioned, you, it's a one time application might take a couple months, especially like on the TerraPro to really start seeing that um, on that side, on the paramag paramagnetism side. But I mean, if you guys kind of answer that question. And then um, on top of that, so are you still going to be using other nutrient additives in your, in yeah. your on top of your product specific to whatever you're growing? The, 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 the farmers already have um, the tools needed to apply any of these products. Uh, for example, the, uh, the, pro, the consortium biopack is liquid. Uh, the farmer only needs to apply 16 ounces of this liquid to the acre. That's all. That's going to cost them about 17 bucks to the acre. And so this is this can be flood. It can be drip. It you can, can spray it spray. on with, a broom, with boom sprayers, which all the farmers have boom sprayers. And uh, it can be uh, um, it can be applied that way uh, quite easy. Only 16 ounces to the acre. 16 ounces an acre. That's and right. That's the total blend. That's of, that's of the three at least. No, or? that's the consortium okay. biopack. That's the bacteria, the okay. probiotic. The mycorrhiza are spores of this beneficial fungus 
And in order for those to work effectively, you have to get them in direct contact with the seed before you plant the seed. Or if you're transplanting transplants, uh, like let's say you had somebody clone for you some cannabis plants in a lab, and now you're going to step them up into bigger containers, then that's your opportunity to be able to dust. When you pull that little transplant plug out of that tray, you can see the roots. Uh, what we do at our nursery at Trees That Please is we put the mycorrhizal spores into a salt shaker and just dust those white roots before we plug it into the next size container. And uh, if you're what medium the containers in, on that no, case? doesn't matter, okay. doesn't matter. Um, in a case of a chili farmer who is planting chili plants uh, um, with a big planter, um, they always have water tanks on those things that they can dribble water down <coughs> and put a, a little bit of water on that newly transplanted uh, seedling so it doesn't dry out before they have a chance to turn the water on. Well, we can put uh, a liquid mycorrhiza that we have into that tank. And they can apply both the liquid mycorrhiza and the bacteria at the same time through that applicator. And can the liquid mycorrhiza fix an already, I don't know, like, can you go back on a pecan field and just spray that in or you need to with, get it first? With pecan trees, you can because the type of mycorrhiza that associates with pecan trees is an ectomycorrhiza. And that means that the fruiting body that's going to uh, disperse the spores is going to be on the surface. And so in nature, the way these spores would find a host plant, another pecan tree, is they're going to fly through the air in the wind and uh, land on the ground. And then rain or irrigation water would drive that tiny little spore through the soil until it comes into contact with the root. And once it comes into contact with the root, it'll uh, inoculate that root. So you, you can do it that way <coughs> so with the countries. Dang it, maybe and, that was a bad uh, but, reference. What about a cannabis field? Okay, cannabis. go in there and save that. Cannabis is different. Okay. A cannabis plant does not associate with that kind of a mycorrhiza. They associate with a mycorrhiza called an endomycorrhiza, also known as vesicular mycorrhiza. And those spores are huge. They're too big to move through the soil, <coughs> through, through Mother Earth soil, a field soil. So those you have to, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you have to get in direct contact with the roots or the seed um, before you ever plant it in that field. Okay. All right. Because so transplanting that, is really a good that, time for cannabis. That's the time to do it. The bacteria, however, can move through the soil. So you can spray the bacteria directly on the soil and they'll, and they'll still work with cannabis. Um, so the, uh, uh, most of your uh, annual crops like corn, cotton, uh, cannabis, hemp, uh, lettuce, onions, etc., are going to associate with the same kind of mycorrhiza called the endo. And so all of them, you have the same the same uh, technique in how to inoculate the plant. You got to get it on seed or get it on the roots uh, when when they're when the roots are exposed. So uh, uh, now cannabis growing in a man-made soil. Let's say the the soil is a coconut husk, coconut fiber, what we call coir fiber. That's really porous. 
And so in that case, you can put the mycorrhiza on the surface and they'll move through that porous soil and come into contact with the roots. So at that time, you could kind of put it in at any time? Yeah, 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 exactly. So if you're growing your cannabis and let's say a Fox Farm soil or a Michael Melendrez soil, secret soil uh, that we blended into it, the the, uh, Cinderite and Terra Pro, um, you know, to turn it into a living soil, uh, then the mycorrhiza can be applied right on the surface. Yeah. So. All right, guys, our, our last little segment here. Um, we got Sam going talking again a little bit about the application of Terraform. And we're going to be uh, discussing here about the future of the cannabis industry from these guys' perspective. And we'll be closing out with you. So, Sam, um, go ahead and talk to us a little bit more about Terraform, some of the results here in application. Thank you, Joaquin. So as Michael mentioned, the application of the probiotics is is very simple and the farmers are already equipped with the infrastructure necessary for applying it. And I've confronted growers who who don't believe that their soils are ready to receive these these probiotics. So that's when we bring the prebiotics into their toolbox, the TerraPro and the Cinderite. And they're also readily equipped to handle this material with granular fertilizer spreaders, for instance. I often recommend an application in the fall, post-cultivation, where you can incorporate the material or top dress it and let that really condition over the winter, for instance, if that's what your growing season is looking like. These amendments, they, they, they get better with time. And there are different applications that, that we can incorporate into our, our cultivation practices, such as, well, if you're an indoor cannabis grower, I've got growers who they'll mix it into their soil medium, both TerraPro and Cinderite, um, but then they may go back and add a handful of Cinderite at the base of the planting hole and mix it in there to try and achieve the biophysical environment that we have in a healthy, mature ecosystem in nature. And with with that, that, that's how we can incorporate raw mineral amendments into a cannabis operation, for instance. But we could also, incorporate a precision application of say TerraPro or Cinderite right beneath a, a drip line. I know with TerraPro, for instance, we've worked with grape growers who put a, uh, a thousand pounds of TerraPro, they dribbled it and right over their, their drip line that was on that row of grapes. And Michael could walk 20 feet away from that line a year later and punch the penetrometer all the way into the ground because we're working with physics here, not, not chemistry. And okay, so my question here, I guess if you're a conventional farmer, I mean, I'm kind of repeating off of what happened, you know, in 2019, you know, people decided to grow a little bit of hemp or a lot of bit of hemp, just depending on what kind of person you are, I guess. So um, right now, if you're looking at, you know, cannabis as a crop alternative um, and you're putting it in a field, does this limit your, do you have to like, be doing crop rotation in the winter if you're doing these soil amendments? Like, would you even say that somebody would have to go out and put the legumes or do something like that? Absolutely, because in order to continue to feed those microbes that we intentionally put in that soil, uh, they need a plant. Okay. And so if once you remove your, uh, your summer crop, and it doesn't matter, it could be corn, it could be sorghum, it could be uh, whatever. Once, you, once that crop is harvested, you don't want to leave that ground bare. You want to go in and, and put a cover crop in immediately so that there's an actively growing root system in that soil so those microbes can continue to be fed. 
And so that's very, very important. You cannot heal soils without roots. Okay. All that's right. So to know. that's mean, the, and you're going to grow more organic matter, more carbon sequestration in the soil by growing roots than you could ever afford by buying compost or making your own compost or, or getting dairy manure from your local dairy and putting it down, which is not a good idea. Um, if you're trying to build carbon in the soil, carbon sequestration, that is done through this collaboration between the plant and the microbes. That's what true carbon sequestration is. So absolutely. And so when you're, okay, then um, I guess it just kind of leads to another question for me. When your soil or when your soil amendments are being, you know, transported or stored or something like that, what keeps them alive if there's no root system before they get to the root? The the consortium biopack. Yes, or they're, I, well, they're they're manufactured in a lab environment and put into a substrate that keeps them viable for up to a year. Oh, okay, and that's how they right and then and yeah, they get that, the roots and they're able to yeah. exist. And that's the bacteria. Now the, the spores of the mycorrhiza, uh, they are also uh, prepared in a laboratory environment. They're washed to make sure there's no dangerous bacteria on them that could kill the spore. And, and, and we never mix bacteria with the mycorrhiza in the package um, because uh, if the package sits around for too long, then, then you can have some shelf life issues to the, to the spores. So we package the spores in a diatomaceous earth environment and the diatomaceous earth protects the spore from dehydrating or from corrosion or from getting killed by a bacteria. So uh, the shelf life on the mycorrhiza, the product's called Endomaxima, by the way, uh, the shelf life on it is two years that we guarantee the spore count. Now the product is still good beyond two years. I'm just saying that if I tell you that there's a million and a half spores per pound in that product, that's at two years. So that's the guarantee. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And awesome. the shelf life on the, on the Terra Pro, uh, well, that's thousands of years, so no, don't worry about that one. That's good to know. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know if there was some sort of extra precaution or time rush that you had to get. This no, stuff only into the only in that the the bacteria and the mycorrhiza, because they're living entities, we do not want to put them in a hot metal shed. Okay. We ask, and the, and we have temperature constraints on the labels, and uh, so we ask you to keep them in a climate controlled environment, like a um, a garage that's not going to get hot. Um, or a warehouse is not going to get hot or cold. And so we want to, you know, protect them from extreme heat or extreme cold. Um, the best as possible. And so that, that is important. Now, if you wanted anything to add on that before we kind of segue into the, our questions about the future there, Sam. Now for the prebiotics, they're, they're very stable in okay. transportation, much less concern distributing the, the prebiotics than it is the probiotics, which are actually living inoculum. Got it. Yeah. All right. Well, I just kind of was asking just in, in curious, um, just trying to think about, I know I'm not necessarily a farmer or a grower, but if I was to use it, how would that workflow mm -hmm. kind of imagine yeah. in my head? You know, and also uh, Joaquin, you, you mentioned in a private conversation, I don't, I don't think it was during this, uh, this conversation about the, uh, what kind of fertilizers would the farmer have to use? Or do we provide the fertilizers or does this collaborate with fertilizers? And, and the answer is yes, it does collaborate with fertilizers. These, this actually allows your 
whatever your fertilizer choice is to work better. And so it's not it's not in conflict with fertilizers. It actually not a replacement either. It's not a replacement for fertilizers, but it makes the fertilizers more productive and more efficient. And um, normally in agriculture, a good 80 to 90 percent of the fertilizer that's being purchased by the farmer never gets used by the plant. And it's it, it leaches out of uh, too far away from the plant. Uh, the plant roots can't reach it and it's lost. With TerraPro, because TerraPro has the ability to sequester both a negatively charged and a positively charged uh, nutrient, the anion and the cation, it grabs them both and holds them so that they can't leach away until the plant has a chance to use them. So it actually makes fertilizers work better. And yields, I mean, I know we kind of literally discussed a little bit about yields, and I know there's not like some guaranteed number, but what can, have you seen? What yeah, you, you expect? If you're a cannabis guy yeah. calling you, what are you going to say? You know, the because there are so many variables out there, uh, the, the length of the growing season, how hot does it get during the day, how much rain did you get, uh, what kind of soil are you using, way too many variables for us to be able to, there. to give you an exact number, but... In the many different kinds of crops that I've been associated with over the past 40 years, we've always seen yield increases. For example, in the Baja of Mexico that Sam described, the putting down of TerraPro on, at, a, at the rate of 1,000 pounds per mile of, of vineyard uh, row, uh, the, the yield went up uh, over 50%, and which thrilled the farmer. Also, the irrigation water demand decreased dramatically. They were needing to irrigate once every four days before they ever met us. And once they put that TerraPro down, their irrigation frequency was able to be stretched out to once every 21 days. That saved them a lot of money. Is the and, is the water demand on grapes pretty? No, it's actually pretty low, but when you're in a hot climate like the Baja Mexico, um, then water management is critical. Uh, in, in the... Uh, uh, Sweet potato farms in California, where we were used, uh, their yield went from 18 crates. A crate is approximately 1,000 pounds of potatoes. Uh, it jumped from 18 crates to 45 crates per acre using uh, TerraPro. Now, all the other variables remain the same. The way they fertilized, the way they irrigated remain the same. But their yield jumped that much. Um, in the pistachio growing regions, their Pistachio yields increased a factor of three times, threefold. Pretty dramatic. The blanks in the pistachio clusters, normally uh, they have 15% of the nuts are empty in California. And when they use TerraPro, the blank percentage dropped down to 3%. With, with cannabis, uh, this is going to be exciting because cannabis is still pretty new to us. And uh, where we're starting to see professional farmers actually getting into it. And uh, not just the, the, the ponytailed uh, guys uh, in, in Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> you know, those are, the, those are the guys that I've been doing business with for a long time. And they're very, they're kind of protective about what, what they're doing and what their results they're getting. So it's hard to get data that makes out sense. of them. No, that actually makes yeah. sense. But now we're starting to work with professional farmers, uh, professional growers, uh, big growers. And, and they can help us start getting uh, data. And this is going to be really, really exciting. And, I, and I'll tell you, I, I, I think uh, we are, uh, we're going to see, uh, you know, supply and demand is the driving force of, 
of economics in, in any in any business. And uh, and there's going to be such a huge demand with not enough supply. Yep. And that's that was the, ideally the point of the conference yesterday. It's going to mm-hmm. be we got a very very small army of people in the south that are going to be responsible for supplying a ridiculous amount of cannabis for New Mexico, Texas, Mexico, and whatever travel and tourism comes from this until Texas, you know, or federal goes first. But otherwise, there's going to be all that consumer business that's going to happen. And even if Las Cruces is a small little place or New Mexico is a smaller place and that our socioeconomic situation isn't as good, there's going to be people with money to spend that want to consume cannabis and want you know, want to take a trip, want to do the whole situation, come have the vision quest. And New Mexico is going to be a hot spot for that. And it's going to be cool to, you know, as it kind of pushes east, you know, here we are, AZ, Colorado, California. We're just kind of making our way now. Yeah, yeah no, it's exciting. And, I, and I'll tell you what, as a soil secrets company uh, that has the ability to, uh, uh, you know, to work with uh, this industry, I am, uh, I, I feel like, you know, even though I'm 65 years old, I'm hitting this just perfect. And uh, the, the, the lowest hanging fruit is right in front of me. Yeah, no, it sounds like you guys are at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, what do they say? Hard you work, luckier you get. It sounds like you've been busting it since the 80s and or before. I so. haven't given up. And, uh, you know, my father, who is a John Deere man uh, here in the Mesilla Valley for 40 years, uh, back in 1968, I wanted to compete in the 4-H soil judging contest. And so he took me all over the Mesilla Valley and helped me uh, dig holes in the ground and uh, taught me how to uh, uh, discriminate between the different soil textures, which is what soil judging is all about. You know, is this, you know, what percent sand, silt, or clay is the soil? And so we were down on our hands and knees digging a hole in uh, Rose Tashiro's farm over by Mayfield High. And uh, he grabbed a handful of dirt and was looking at it. And he stopped and looked at me and he said, you know, Michael, everything we do in farming is wrong. And it's destroying this, our soil. We need to learn how to do a better job of taking care of our soil. Now, this came from the John Deere man. You know, the man that was selling the huge implements to slice and dice that soil to death. And he realized even in 1968 that that it was hurting it. And so one of the last things that he told me before he passed away in his his middle 80s was that uh, I'd just given a lecture to a bunch of farmers over in Deming, New Mexico, and he went with me to to hear the lecture. And as we were driving back home, he said to me, Michael, he goes, I'm so proud of what you're doing that you have not given up. And that what you're doing is the right thing, you know, for agriculture. I wish I was a young man so I could help you sell it. He was a good salesman. My mother used to say, your dad is a good salesman. He could, he could sell a, a snowball to an Eskimo in the middle of the winter. Huh. You know? and, awesome. uh, and so he, when he said to me, I wish I could help you sell it, that was one of the proudest moments of my life. That's cool. No, that's super special. That's crazy. Yeah. And no wonder you have a knack for sales off, you know, product development all the way and seeing it through and distribution. And mm-hmm. how many, how many acres did you say over a million? I mean, now We're probably well over a million acres. 
Yeah, the, uh, the liquid mycorrhiza that we have is used by the vast majority of uh, potato growers that grow from McCain. You know, McCain is the largest uh, frozen potato uh, um, distributor in the world. And so they have farms in, in Europe and Mexico and the United States and Canada. And, uh, and so this liquid mycorrhiza is dribbled onto the seed uh, when they plant the seed potatoes. They use a cup planter or a vacuum air planter. And this is the only mycorrhizal product that works in that environment. And so um, McCain endorses the use of this mycorrhiza with their potato growers. And we actually have data from uh, 1,080 farms across North America and Europe and Mexico that shows that when they use this mycorrhiza, their yield increase is going to go up per acre by over... Uh, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm, I should be looking at the data to tell you the truth on this. Um, I believe it's a 10% increase in yield, which for a potato grower is a lot of money. That's very significant. They're going to they're gonna make a huge profit gain when they do that. And the cost is only about $58 to the acre to do it. So they're going to make hundreds and hundreds of dollars an acre more profit by spending $58. I see. Yeah. And, and so, you have the data to back it and up. I've got the data to back it up, and uh, and it's being used by potato growers all over North America, Europe, and Mexico. Sam, any closing words, future remarks here? And it's just really encouraging to see where we're at in agriculture right now, entering a new paradigm, and to hear about Michael's breadth of experience and how he's seen this transition from a mindset of conventional agriculture into more regenerative practices and approaches to production. And we can help farmers not by replacing their current program, but by, by complementing it, by improving it with this biomimetic toolbox, biomimicries. We're, we're looking at a healthy, mature soil ecosystem, and we're trying to bring those factors of that soil's development into uh, a new stage of succession soil ecosystem. So um, heavily cultivated field or a controlled growing environment, such as container growth indoor cannabis. And we can do that very efficiently with the cooperative development that's taking place amongst industries. I, I think of my employer, Rocky Mountain Stone. They've been in the coring and mining industry for their entire existence, just beginning to get involved in the green industry. And it's a, a very important collaboration because they have the infrastructure and relationships that are necessary to efficiently transport and deliver this material. And so with the biomimetic toolbox, we can permanently recondition and improve our productive agricultural lands. And, and if you're ever interested or need more information or questions on this matter, you can feel free to contact me as an authorized dealer of soil secrets a national distributor of Cinderite at sam at cinderite.com. It's sam at c-i-n-d-e-r-i-t-e.com. And we will link um, all contact information and everything in the show notes. Just to clarify myself as well, um, I'm, I'm guessing, do, uh, so if I'm just a farmer, been recommended to use you guys, do you guys go out there, give like a land consult and say, this is what you need, this, this, and this, or do you just send a standard packet? Do you do a soil sample or how does that initial inspection work? We will work with uh, the farmer in any capacity that that farmer needs. Got it. 
And so if they need assistance on learning, uh, on interpreting a soil analysis test, uh, we can do that. If they need us on site the day that they're applying these materials, we can do that. And uh, so uh, if they need us to actually look at the site and tell them, uh, you know, this is what we think you really need to do, you know, based on what we can see here as your problem, um, then, then we can do that. We want these farmers to be successful. We want them to be profitable. And, uh, and so we're going to, we'll, we'll make every effort we can uh, to help them achieve that goal. Excellent. Well, guys, I mean, thanks for coming on to the Truth in Cannabis podcast today. We had a lot of fun getting to meet you guys and kind of hopefully kick off this grow legalization season in New Mexico. I think we, I think we all did it a pretty good justice yesterday and today and keep carrying on and spreading the good word. And yeah. Learning. So well, um, thanks, guys. I'm excited and I'm very grateful that you invited me to be here. So thank you very much for that. Thank, thank you, you, Joaquin. It's right. been a pleasure. Yeah. Cool guys. All right. Wrapping her up. You're listening to the truth in cannabis podcast brought to you by farm true. For links to all our episodes and more cannabis content, visit www.farmtrue.care. As always, please subscribe and share if you enjoy this episode.